That battle has been won. Amen? Amen. Mark chapter 6, in the first six verses we're going to read today. If you want to turn with me, or scroll to it, or if you just want to read the monitor. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid, hand, laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Good morning. morning. You know, that word marveled, Jesus marveled. I got snagged by that one this past week. Think about um, what causes Jesus to marvel. What, What amazes Jesus? I mean, how could God, the eternal son, be amazed at anything? All throughout the Gospels, we are shown that people like us marvel at Jesus, right? And and, and how can you not? Jesus heals the sick. Uh, Jesus calms the sea. We've seen in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uh, taught with the very authority of God, and people were astonished at his teaching. Oh, how people marveled at Jesus. Jesus raised the dead. How can you not be astonished with this Jesus? And yet the scripture says uh, that uh, in, in two instances, Jesus himself marveled. Jesus himself was amazed. Just twice in the Bible we read that. In Mark 6, which we just heard read to us, and now in Matthew 18, which you've had plenty of time to turn to, Matthew 8, rather, which you've had time to turn to, um, just these two times in Scripture, we're told that Jesus marveled at something. Jesus marveled, says Mark 6, at the astonishing unbelief of the people closest to him. Uh, the, The people who lived in his hometown, Uh, people who arguably knew the most about Jesus by observation, Um, people familiar with the Bible, Um, immensely privileged in that sense. Such people, more often than not, did not believe in him. And Jesus marveled at that unbelief. He marveled at the willful unbelief of the spiritually privileged. 
I pray this morning that our King, Jesus, need not marvel in such a way at you. Surrounded as you are with the privileges of the gospel, bathed as you've been, familiarity with the word of God, even in a culture that that still speaks of God, one nation under God, that sort of thing. As we turn to Matthew's gospel, we see once again Jesus marveling, but for the opposite reason, really. Jesus marvels at the strong, settled faith of a Gentile, someone who had simply heard about Jesus. And you reach the right conclusions about this Jesus of whom he's heard and responded to those right conclusions. And so Jesus marvels at the faith of the spiritually impoverished, or as he said in his Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit. And if you wonder why I put those words up in front of you on on the screens this morning, it feels a bit academic, doesn't it? I, I have a sense of that. But here's the thing. You're in one of those camps. One way or another, you are a marvel from heaven's perspective. Living as you do in the age that you do with all of the gospel benefits that you have, would you not be a marvel in heaven's eyes to yet disbelieve in this king of glory? Oh, but what a marvel if by grace you are one whose humility, whose poverty of spirit manifests itself in an astonishing faith for the reasons we'll see here in Matthew 8. Only the poor in spirit, says Jesus, go through this narrow gate of faith in the sufficiency of heaven's king. Well, that, that's a bit of a wind-up, isn't it? Let's, let's just look at the, the verses before us. Matthew 8 and verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, note that, and saying, Lord, note that too, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Remember, Matthew has been presenting to us Christ as king. Who is Jesus? He is uh, the the, the long-awaited king, a promise to God's people. Uh, Heaven's king has now been born uh, out of eternity into humanity, into time, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this King Jesus has come from heaven. He's come to save his people from their sins. The King has come to reign in his people and to reign over his people. And one day this King will reign with his people over all things on this earth. Amen? And this kingdom of heaven, says Matthew, a kingdom that is both now and and yet to come in its fullness uh, is entered through this narrow gate of allegiance to the king. There's only one gate. And it's not wide, it's narrow. And now in Matthew 8, we're being shown pictures, if you will, through these miracles of what it is to to go through the narrow gate. What does repentance and faith in Christ look like? Well, says Matthew, it it looks like that leper who came to Jesus in in verses 1 through 4. Remember that from last week? Please tell me you remember this from last week. It's like this leper who came to Jesus, and, and, and the leper came to Jesus desperate, absolutely desperate, And and he came to Jesus dependent, nothing to offer, nothing to commend himself, nothing to help himself. He came to Jesus desperate and dependent, and he is delivered. And, And so the leprosy of your sin that separates you from God, the leprosy of my sin, the sin we're born with, can be healed, can be cleansed simply by coming to Jesus in this way, desperate, dependent. By faith alone, in Christ alone, we we can exclaim, as that leper surely did, I'm clean, I'm clean. Is that your heart cry today? Clean? because of the work of Christ for you. What what does it look like in, in, in real time to go through this narrow gate, to, to, uh, to, to, to live in allegiance to the king? Well, Matthew says it's, it's kind of like this, this centurion, this, this Gentile. He, he's another kind of, of, of outsider, I guess you could say, from a, from a Jewish perspective. Um, remember, lepers were outsiders uh, in, in, in the view of God's people because of, of their defilement. They were ritually unclean. They literally 
were required to live outside the camp of God's people. And this centurion also is an outsider. He's a Gentile, let alone a participant in the occupying army. He is an enemy, you could say, in the eyes of the Jews, an enemy of the people of God. A Jew could not touch a leper without being ritually defiled. A Jew could not enter the home of a Gentile without being ritually defiled. A a leper despised by the people of God, and so too a centurion would be despised. And yet both men express a great need. Do you notice that? And both men see in Jesus a hope that is found nowhere else. And Jesus receives them both. How shocking this is from a first century perspective, particularly from a first century Jewish perspective. This is all upside down. How many of you know the kingdom of heaven is all upside down? And it's wonderfully so, isn't it? This kingdom of grace. That's how the two men are similar. In, in other ways, they couldn't be more different. A, a leper was the, was the very embodiment of human weakness, um, humiliation, inability. Um, not so for the centurion. I mean, he's the very embodiment of human strength, high position, ability. I mean, you, you can be certain that this fellow who commands 100 soldiers, he's tough, he's smart, He's capable, or he wouldn't be in the position that he's in. This man gives orders, and those orders are followed out. He doesn't even have to go do the stuff himself. He just commands others to go do it. And yet, all of that power and and that position that he enjoys are worthless to him in terms of receiving what he needs from Jesus. And miracle of miracles, he knows this. He understands this. So this is a story of great humility. And I beg you to hear this. Those of you who, um, in, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, of course, I'm glad to be saved, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I think, I think that's a fair trade for uh, the life that I've lived out for God. Do you realize there are such people who think this way? That's called ignorance. That's called rebellion. And this king, Jesus, will have none of that. And we see that in the wonderful account of this centurion. Look at verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him, and he pleads with Jesus, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. I would submit to you that the words centurion and pleading don't, they don't seem to go together. Centurions didn't plead with people, especially Jews, even Jewish rabbis. And this fellow calls Jesus Lord, Master. This is astonishing. How Matthew's first readers, Jewish Christians yet under Roman rule, would have marveled to be reminded of this 
grace of their king? What great humility. In in fact, in Luke's gospel, did any of you read the parallel account of this in Luke's gospel? There were three people in the first service who did, and I was hoping for better in this one. Looks like there's maybe five. You know, you in the back don't count because you heard me ask this before. Okay. I hope that you did because you noticed some big differences. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we're told that this centurion didn't even come to Jesus in person. He, he sent intermediaries, and he sent Jewish intermediaries at that. Matthew just kind of wants us to know the basics of what happened. Listen to Luke's version. Luke's the detail guy, verse 3 of Luke 7. Now, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And, and we might marvel... Um, at the the tender heart of this tough guy, this centurion. I mean, slaves uh, in, 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 in a first century Roman perspective were, were property. Uh, if a slave was ill, it was kind of like a, a tool wearing out. I mean, just go get a different one, not this guy. I mean, what, what love and compassion he has for this slave. But, but here's the thing, Jesus doesn't marvel at that. And we might marvel at this centurion because he has a high regard for the Jewish people. He knows a Jew cannot enter a Gentile home without being um, ceremonially defiled, and so he'll not ask Jesus to do so, though though the master is willing. Furthermore, Luke tells us this fellow built the Jews in Capernaum a synagogue. I mean, think about that. The Romans were known for tearing other people's stuff down, not building churches. This guy does that. In fact, when the Jewish religious leaders come to Jesus, they try to make a case that he's actually worthy of what he asks from Jesus. Listen to verses 4 and 5 of Luke 7. When they came to Jesus, they were earnestly pleading with him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Jesus, this man is actually worthy of you doing him a favor. This man is actually worthy. Won't you? Um, I mean, it just seems like a fair exchange for you to heal this Gentile servant. But that is not what astonishes Jesus about this fellow. The fact that he spent some time and money building a building for the Jews. Before they even get to this fellow's house, the centurion hears that they're coming. Jesus is on his way. And he quickly dispatches some some friends with another message, Luke says. uh, Lord... Uh, Do not trouble yourself further, for I am not good enough for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. So you think, well, this guy sends intermediaries because he's too lazy to go himself. No, 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 no. This This is a story of great humility. This fellow has an understanding by God's grace. He's not worthy of, of an audience with this king. 
He's not worthy to invite this Jesus into his home. He'll not even ask him to do so. And back in Matthew's gospel, Matthew wants us just to know what the centurion conveyed to Jesus. Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Please hear this. Those of you who have this soundtrack going on in your brain, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Do you, do you want to know something about that? It's true. It's true. This fellow realizes he's not even worthy to have Jesus come to his home. His plea to Jesus is not based on worthiness, though others tried to make that case for him. His plea to Jesus is based on his confidence in Jesus himself, Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. You say, well, what in the world does this have to do with me? The I'm not worthy bit. Let that remind you of the one who is worthy. Let that remind you that the object of your faith is not in your worthiness, it's in Christ's sufficiency, his power, his authority. And friends, this is the narrow gate. A sinner's plea is not based on worthiness, but on confidence in Jesus' authority. Well, we're, we're going in a direction now, aren't we? Look, look at verse 9. For I also am, am a man under authority, says the centurion, with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So this is a story of great humility, but it's also a story of great authority. And it's kind of astounding, really, because you think at first blush, this guy's comparing himself to Jesus? Well, he he is in a sense. Notice the word also in verse 9. I also am a man under authority. The centurion compares himself to Christ in two ways. Both he and Christ can simply speak and stuff happens. They don't have to show up in person. Secondly, both he and Christ are under authority. What is that about? The centurion is under the authority of his superiors for sure. He's not a top officer in that respect. But how how is Jesus under authority? We We need to know this because miracle of miracles, somehow this centurion understands this about Jesus. Jesus has come ministering in the very power of God. Who but God causes leprosy to disappear, restores limbs eaten away by a disease? Who but God heals in this way? Jesus does. This Jesus has come to live among sinners with divine authority. 
And in his humanity, Jesus ministers under the authority of God the Father. He has been born into humanity. What, what, a, what a humility this is. The King of kings, the eternal one, the creator of all things, born of a woman like his creatures, placed in a manger, living among a people who themselves live under the rule of a foreign occupier. Jesus has come only to do the will of his father, not his will. Jesus cannot do anything on his own except that which the father gives him to do. Somehow, the centurion understands that Jesus ministers under divine authority. Listen to what Jesus said about this. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so yet Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal son. He's the creator. John in his gospel says he, he is the word. He is the logos. He's the, the, the originator and sustainer of all things, this Jesus. And yet in his humanity, Jesus gladly assumes the role of servant and serves the will of the Father relentlessly. For you. For you. Jesus is, in that sense, then, a man under authority. And you, and you just have to marvel at this, really. Jesus did. Somehow the centurion has a sense of the majesty of this Jesus, this king. Clear views of Jesus give this centurion a clear view of himself. In light of who Jesus is, how could he possibly be worthy to ask anything of him? Friend, in light of who Jesus is, do you have a clear view of Jesus? How big is your Jesus? Because a clear view of Jesus met with a clear view of yourself. Well, now that's a good place to be. Now, now you're seeing rightly. If you are to be saved, friend, you must have both a, a clear view of Jesus and a clear view of yourself. Do you see the chasm between you and this king, this Jesus? Is that humility yours in light of his authority? What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, as long as you see yourself as worthy, as long as you think of salvation as a, as a favor from God in response to something within you, you remain outside the kingdom. 
The, the, the gate is too narrow for that kind of pride. As, as long as you're, you're doing the mental calculus of, well, you know, I, I, I think I haven't really built a building for anything, but, um, but, but I've done some good stuff. You know, I could see why God would, God would save somebody like me. Jesus was not astonished at all by this centurion's position, by his power, even by the fact that he loved the Jews, the God's people, even the fact that he built a, a, a church, apparently. Those are all wonderful things. But their responses, are they not, to a right view of God? Not things that make a person worthy. This is a story of great humility and great authority. And Jesus himself says, as he marvels at this, this is a story of great faith. This is what faith looks like. Utterly self-forgetful in light of who Jesus is. Look at verse 10 of Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and, and, and he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Let me, let me ask you something. Do you see the sufficiency of this Jesus, this king for you? I mean, have you, have you been blessed with this work of grace that is faith in his word alone to save you. I mean, the centurion just says, just say the word and it will be done. And let me just stop and explain that. What do I mean by faith in his word? And th- by the way, this is, a, this is kind of a, an excursion so it doesn't count against my time. <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you know when to restart it. Um, Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Do you believe this? From the heart. Have you confessed it? Then you are saved. Speak the word and it will be so. The centurion says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe? In him, then trust in the sufficiency of this Jesus. He is mighty to save you, but I don't feel worthy. This is not to do with feeling worthy. You're not worthy. That's the whole point. What makes the centurion's faith so great is not its complexity, but its simplicity. You say, well, it doesn't seem like he has a very well-developed soteriology. Um, There's words missing, are there not, in in his um, interaction with Jesus? He hasn't, it doesn't say anywhere that he prayed a sinner's prayer. I mean, it might just be my translation. Is it in your Bible? Is there a sinner's prayer? No. He's not walking up the aisle in a church. He's not promising to do this or that or the other thing. He's certainly not pointing to his own merit, though he is meritorious by human standard. He simply trusts in the sufficiency 
of Christ for what he asks. And, and Matthew is saying, look, for those of you who have, you, you, you've just heard this Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, the greatest gospel message ever preached on planet Earth, and you wonder what it is to go through this narrow gate, well, it's like this leper, see? And, and it's like this centurion. It's all to do with the sufficiency of Jesus, not the worthiness of the sinner. I mean, think of it this way. If you fast forward in history just a little bit, the, the disciples will eventually point to the temple in Jerusalem and, and they'll say to Jesus, don't, don't you just marvel at this? I mean, isn't this amazing? Look what, has, look what man has done. And, and Jesus isn't all that impressed with that at all. In fact, I think he says something about it being torn down. Um, but I tell you what, He marvels when a soul born in sin is enlivened to become the temple of the living God. He marvels when a sinner born in darkness, as all of us are, turn to him and become as light in a world that's dark with sin. This is what causes Jesus to marvel. So this centurion could not be more right. Jesus was, in that sense, a man under authority. And I I want us to just think uh, for a moment. And you you haven't started the clock back up yet. This is still the excursion. Um, Does it not amaze you what Christ has done as one under authority? He's left heaven's glory. He's condescended himself to become as one of us. He lived out the very righteousness of God in real time, day after day after day, all for love's sake. You say, love for me because I'm so special? Not so fast with that. Love for the Father. This was the plan in eternity past. And it's love for the Father in God the Son. That ignites love toward you, unlovely as you are. Are you hearing this? Oh, how we need this Jesus who has come and lived as one under authority in this way. Think of it this way. In Jesus Christ, the Father is finally honored in humanity uh, the way he should have been honored all along by you. In me. Jesus Christ in humanity finally gave all the trust and love that the Father deserves that we have not given to the Father. And yet Jesus, despite all of those perfections in his humanity, was nailed to that cross, wet with his own blood, not, not just by sinful men, but by the Father offered as a sacrifice for his people. And this Jesus, in doing so, has defeated sin's curse for his own, for you who belong to him. Not because you're worthy, but because he is worthy for you. Charles Spurgeon 
puts it this way. He says, the fact is that high thoughts of self go with low thoughts of Christ. But low thoughts of self should always be associated with high thoughts of Christ. This centurion has high thoughts of Christ. What amazes Jesus? What what, what astonishes God the Son? Well, Mark's gospel says that he's amazed at the willful unbelief of spiritually privileged people. But oh, how Jesus marvels at the faith of those who are poor in spirit, like the centurion. You know, when, when Jesus says, truly, I've never seen faith such as this in all of Israel, he, he's, not, he's not saying that no one has had faith in him. I mean, clearly the disciples have, minus Jesus, or minus Judas, uh, you know, Mary has. You read the Magnificat, you know, in Luke's gospel, you get a sense that Mary knew she needed a savior. Mary was a recipient of grace, not a dispenser of grace. Simeon. Anyway, the, the list goes on. But Jesus is saying, you know, as, as, as he is revealed to the nation Israel in the first century, most people did not believe in him. They agreed that he was a great teacher. They, they even agreed that he did miracles, that he worked miracles. There was no problem with that. They were impressed with him, but not committed to him. And I, and I wonder, friend, is it possible that, that among the spiritually privileged church folk of our day, is this not still a danger? That, that mere familiarity with Christ somehow becomes an obstacle to humble faith in Christ. And you know, if that's you, I just I urge you to just consider this. These next verses in Matthew 8 are, are, are for your ears. Jesus says in verse 11, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, why, why is this in Matthew's gospel, this little bit about the centurion? Because this centurion's faith is a picture now of that vast multitude of people from all over the earth who will come to Christ in just the same way, not thinking themselves worthy, but having a right view of Jesus, the king, and having a right view of themselves, those who are desperately in need of him. And by contrast, those in the first century who experienced so much of his teaching thought themselves to be sons of the kingdom simply because of their heritage. They they, they could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. How cool would that be? James 4, 6, I think, sums it up. Maybe I should have started with this. Um, James 4, 6, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
That, that has always been God's economy in salvation. Grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34, though God scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and, get this, and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. Praise God for the mercy of this king. What what does saving faith look like, Matthew? I mean, what does it look like to go through the narrow gate that leads to life? Well, it looks it looks like what went on with this leper. It looks like what went on with this centurion. And 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 you must know this, right? We we we've we've seen this before in Matthew's gospel that the the gospel welcome always comes with a warning. And so this is a story of a great warning. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those familiar with Jesus, yet uncommitted to Jesus, will be turned away from the banquet hall of fellowship with God. And they'll be cast into outer darkness. Hell is the the darkest darkness imaginable. And you say, well, you know, I I didn't come here to be confronted with the prospect of hell and all that sort of thing. I came here to be encouraged. I've come with a friend. I didn't... I didn't expect to hear about hell. Um, I'm not sure what, what hell has to do with this, this account of the life of Jesus, God the Son. Listen, Jesus spoke much of hell. Most of the truth about hell that we have in the Gospels is spoken by Jesus. Why would Jesus spend so much time speaking of hell? Because he's come to save you from it. He came to be nailed to that cross and rise again on the third day. He took hell for you. And he says, come to me. I know you're unworthy. I I know you don't think you've even got cause to, to have the conversation with me. But I'll have it with you. And I'll come to you. Well, I don't want to end with that, the warning. And happily, neither does Matthew. Um, Notice that with this great humility in the centurion, uh, his his faith in this great authority of Jesus, uh, there is great reward. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you, as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. And some of you might be thinking, um, well, you, you finally got to the end point. Um, and, and pastor, don't you notice that this story is to do with physical healing, not salvation? That this is to do with a, a fellow servant being healed. He's near unto death and he's, and he's healed. Well, I, I know that. 
But, but remember, Matthew, of all of the miracles of Jesus that could be recorded, of all of the healings of Jesus that could be recorded, of all of the places in his gospel where these accounts could have been placed, these are placed right here. Right after Jesus has said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow and and, and the way is constricted that leads to life. And so these accounts of healings are pictures for us of what it looks like to go through this narrow gate. Faith looks like that leper coming to Christ personally and desperate and dependent, and he's delivered. Faith looks like this centurion pleading on behalf of someone he loves. And what do I mean by that? Not salvation by proxy, don't think that. But but doesn't it give you hope as you pray for others? Those who are dear to you? Of course we come to Christ for ourselves. We must, or we're not saved. But, But are you not encouraged that we are privileged to come to him and plead for others as well? You see how willing he is to hear the pleadings of those who have a right view of him? God, the people I love, they they need a savior too. I'm not worthy to ask you this. But will you not save my child? Is there anyone here praying that? Lord, I'm not even worthy to ask you of this, but will you not save my mom, my dad, Lord, by your grace, so many of those children who came to VBS this past week, their voices are full of the joy of the Lord. They know you, but, but, but Lord, you know some don't. And unworthy as we are, we plead with you to save them, to heal their hearts, give them a right view of who you really are. All right, that, that's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for yet another wonderful portrait of the sufficiency of our King. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today of whom you might be marveling simply at the lack of belief, despite all of the gospel privileges that we enjoy in our day, in our culture even, in our country. Lord, I pray that as you have been lifted up, you would draw sinners to yourself. Lord, let us be a people who lay aside any sense of worthiness, any sense of being owed, any sense of earning back your favor, Lord. Let us just come to you desperate and dependent that we might be delivered. And Lord, we thank you for reminding us that you are eager to hear our pleas for others. 
And, and so we plead, Lord, we pray that those in our families who are yet alienated from you, Lord, I pray that you would work that grace into them that they might see you, Jesus, for who you really are, that they might see themselves for, for who they really are. And Lord, I pray that that would be the heart cry of we who belong to Hayden Bible Church, Lord, that we would always be pleading for others, that we would not be content to be secure in you without also thinking of all those who on this day are not yet. So help us with this, Lord, we pray. And we pray it for your namesake.